This meeting is being recorded. Can everyone see my screen? Can everyone hear me? Ali, you're muted. We can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Can everyone hear me now? Hi guys, I'm Ellie. I am a first year at Rockefeller studying tumor initiation in the context of skin cancer. And my section of the presentation will be focused on debunking all these myths. We've gone into vaccine hesitancy. You guys have got some um, great instruction from Naira and Nina about what is the problem? What is causing this problem? And now that we have all that we need to really know, what is the truth? And that's what science really is at the end of the day. It's the pursuit of truth. It's the pursuit of knowing what is real and what is not. And so we're gonna spend some time just debunking some of the major myths that have been going around either on Facebook or different sources of misinformation. So let's get started. So I'm only gonna tackle a couple of myths because I think it's more important to really delve into a topic rather than just cover it at the surface level. And so the myth that I'm going to try to bust today is first the speed. I don't know about you guys, but one thing that I was very concerned about was the speed at which these vaccines were developed. Even though I'm a graduate student doing science, cancer, one thing I was really concerned about was the speed because as I'm gonna go into, vaccines take a long time to make. And so it was a little bit weird to me that it was so quick, it was less than a year. And so this is the biggest myth that we're gonna, we're gonna be talking about and one concern that we really want to address. The second one is one that stems from immunology, which is that I've already had COVID, so I'm already immune. I don't need the vaccine. And this is not true. And so we're going to address that today as well. The third big one is the vaccine side effects, which I'm sure you guys have heard some very recent news about the side effects of one of the vaccines. And so we're going to talk about these as well. And so to really unpack the speed of the vaccines, it's really important to know some vaccine history. And so I'm going to go into a couple of the prevalent vaccines in history and how long it took. So first is smallpox. Smallpox was really, really prevalent back in the 1800s and in the 18th century. And it was actually the first vaccine administered in the U.S. was smallpox. And because of the vaccinations and a very very worldwide inoculation program, we were able to eradicate smallpox. I don't think we even hear about it that much anymore. And so this was the first vaccine that was administered. And this took, I think, at least 30 years to develop. And so that was the 1800s, though. So they didn't have the technology that we have now. So that's maybe why it took so long. Fast forward a, a lot of years later, a century, we have the typhoid vaccine. So the typhoid vaccine fights against typhoid fever, and this took 16 to 29 years to develop. And this was back um, in 1909. In 1937, almost 30 years later, the yellow fever vaccine was developed, and this took 11 years. In the 1950s, we had polio. The polio outbreak was really, really scary because it led to paralysis in some cases. And this took over five years to develop. So not that long, we see this trend of decreasing time throughout history. And then in 1970, chickenpox, which I don't know if you guys have ever had concerns with when you guys were younger, but my mom was definitely worried about me and my brother getting chickenpox. And this took five years to develop and the vaccine was developed in 1970. Around the same time, the hepatitis B vaccine was developed, and this also took five years. 
So the most recent one that I could find was the HPV vaccine. And this took over 20 years to develop. And this was, we're, we're coming into the 21st century now. And so you can see that even though there seems to be a decreasing time at which vaccines are eventually produced, it still takes a long time. It does not happen in less than a year, right? Like with the COVID-19 vaccines. And so just for some illustration, smallpox is pretty similar to chickenpox, although the rates of fatality are much higher. Yellow fever, this is a symptom of yellow fever. And then polio, FDR was famously paralyzed by polio. And then chickenpox, which is a very recent concern that we have amongst children. And so here we have a pretty brief history of vaccines. And what you can see, as I said, is that it takes a long time. That's the bottom line. And so contrast this with the COVID-19 vaccine, where what we saw is a very quick creation, a quick rollout. And so a lot of factors contribute to this, but let's look at the facts. The first thing to understand is that I showed how long it takes for the vaccines to be developed. Historically speaking, about 10 to 15 years is the average throughout history. And so the fastest vaccine ever developed before COVID-19 was actually the mumps vaccine, which happened right after World War II, and this took four years. This was the fastest, this was the precedent. And so this was the bar, in essence. And so what really was the COVID-19 vaccine timeline? Well, in March 30th, 2020, which was really when the U.S. went into lockdown, the pandemic really, really started then, the Department of Health and Human Services, or the HHS, started a program called Operation Warp Speed, which is what Naira alluded to earlier. And Operation Warp Speed was very poorly named. And as our guest will go into, this phrasing really freaked her out. And a lot of health professionals decried this. They said that using these words or this terminology is cause for fear. How can something happen at warp speed like a vaccine and no regulations were skipped, corners weren't cut? All of these things you have to ask when you think about the term warp speed. How is it so fast? And so this happened in March 30th. And with Operation Warp Speed, I'll get into this later, but this really jump-started and catalyzed the, the production of the, of the COVID-19 vaccines, particularly by Moderna and Pfizer. And so by July or August, by July and August 2020, the phase one and two clinical trial data was published by both Moderna and Pfizer. And so already we're getting into the, the clinical trials. And as I'll go into later, these aren't even the first steps of vaccine development. And so we are clearly seeing a very fast pace of producing this vaccine. And by November 2020, the phase three clinical trials were published by both vaccine companies already. And so clearly it's very, very fast. And so this is in direct contrast with all the previous vaccine efforts. And in a month later, emergency use authorization was given to both vaccine companies by the FDA. And so emergency use, I just want to clarify this, and Dr. Garcia Sastre, who is one of our guests for one of the podcast episodes that you guys will listen to, um, talks about emergency use authorization. It's not fully approved by the FDA. Emergency use authorization means that it's not accessible to children, but emergency use means that the risks of getting COVID are, are way scarier or outweigh the risk of the vaccine. That's what it's saying. It's more beneficial to get them than it is to suffer from COVID or a COVID infection. And so emergency use has never been applied for any vaccine in history. This emergency use authorization is very new. And this is the very first time that a vaccine has received emergency use authorization. And so this is an important precedent that's being set. And as Dr. Garcia Sache will go into, we're in an unprecedented situation where over 570,000 Americans have died. And just to put this in 
perspective, this is 190 times more than the number of Americans that died from 9-11. And so a lot of people have died. A lot of people are experiencing neurological and psychological effects, as Nina mentioned and went into. And so this is a really scary time. And this is what really prompted the emergency use authorization by the FDA. And so let's go into Operation Warp Speed because government's complicated, as a lot of us know. And so let's really unpack what is Operation Warp Speed? What, what does it entail? What is it, essentially? And so at its baseline definition, Operation Warp Speed was a federal effort that supported multiple vaccine companies, there were six in total, to accelerate production of a COVID-19 vaccine. And so Operation Warp Speed was started in March 30th um, of last year, like I mentioned. And so Operation Warp Speed was a partnership between the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense. And so for those of you who got vaccinated, do you guys remember a lot of military members at your guys' vaccination sites? That's the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense encompasses the military, and so they were actually a part of Operation Warp Speed and getting the vaccine out. And so they assisted with vaccine distribution. And so Operation Warp Speed invested $18 billion in vaccine development. And just to put that in perspective, the next largest or most expensive global effort to develop a COVID-19 vaccine was $1 billion. So the U.S. far outpaced every other global effort to create this vaccine. It's 18 times more than the next largest effort. And so that's why the U.S. got priority in essence, because they invested so much money in these companies that the U.S. became the top client. And that's why the U.S has a lot of vaccine access in comparison to other countries because they spent so much money in this initiative, in essence. And so that leads us to the question of, with, well, with Operation Warp Speed, were corners cut? How could we do something so quickly without cutting some corners, without skipping some regulations? Was it safe? Was this process safe? And so to really unpack this question, we have to know the stages of vaccine development. And so the stages of vaccine development are as follows. We first have the exploratory stage or the R&D stage, the research and discovery phase. And so the R&D stage really entails learning about the virus, learning about the disease, the bacteria. What is it? How does it work? Why is it so dangerous? All these questions are really part of that first exploratory stage. The second stage is the preclinical stage, where we, where we start performing experiments on mice or laboratory animals, and we start thinking about what vaccine technology can we create or can we use to fight this virus that we have explored in the first stage. And so that's the second stage. And so the exploratory stage usually takes one to five years on average if the disease is new and we've never seen it before. The preclinical stage takes about several months to a year. And the phase one clinical trial, which is um, testing the safety of the vaccine in a very small controlled environment, they're not even asking if it cures or provides immunity against the disease in question. They're just asking if it's safe, if the vaccine is safe. And so this usually takes several months. The phase two clinical trial, where you're testing the vaccine in a relatively large population, a couple hundred people, that takes one to two years. And this is asking, can it prevent infection of the, the pathogen or the disease that we explored? And then phase three is the one that most of us really hear about. It's the one that's done in tens of thousands of people. And it's asking whether or not the, the vaccine is actually effective. And so 
Phase three clinical trial takes one to four years and sometimes longer than that. And then after all these uh, clinical trials, um, the FDA reviews them and either gives its approval or not. And then after, if it's approved, then the vaccine undergoes mass production. And so these are the stages of vaccine development, which leads to eventual rollout. And so the question is, well, for the COVID-19 vaccine, what did this really look like? Let's apply what happened with COVID into this mold of the different vaccine development stages. And so let's start with the exploratory stage. So the exploratory stage, like I mentioned, is learning about the learning about the virus or the disease or the bacteria. And so what's interesting is that COVID or SARS-CoV-2 is very similar to SARS, which is severe acute respiratory syndrome. And, and it has about an 80% genetic similarity. So it's very similar genetically. And then it's also similar to MERS. MERS is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Both of these viruses were discovered in 2003 and 2012, which is years ago. And, and they're caused by coronaviruses. The COVID-19 virus is not the first coronavirus that we ever discovered. And so we were already studying them and actually a vaccine had already passed phase one clinical trials for MERS. And so once we had the sequence of the virus, which happened within a month of, of COVID discovery, honestly, especially in the US, um, we already had all the tools that we needed. We knew how the virus worked. We knew how it replicated. We knew its symptoms and we knew how to spot it, what different characteristics the virus has. And so this exploratory stage, we already had a very solid foundation for understanding the virology of COVID-19. And so this did not take very long at all. And so this was a very accelerated stage. And so that's why it was so quick for COVID-19. Now for the preclinical stage, as you guys may have heard, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are mRNA vaccines. And I don't know enough about mRNA vaccines to really discuss this and go into detail, but Dr. Garcia Sastre will. And mRNA technology in vaccine usage has been already used and studied for flu and for Zika virus and rabies and cytomegalovirus or CMV. And so mRNA technology already existed and was already being studied and had already passed a clinical trial. And so the technology was there. We didn't have to develop it. And that's why these two stages went by so quickly. It's because we already had the foundation prior to the pandemic. And so now we go into the clinical trials, which is what a lot of people tend to care about, whether or not clinical trials were skipped or maybe they were shortened, what was happening with the clinical trials. And so for the first time, the phase one and phase two clinical trials for this vaccine were combined. They were combined and they were happening at the same time. And so that's why it was so quick. And if you guys remember from what I just presented, the phase one and phase two clinical trial data were published at the same time by Moderna and Pfizer. And that's because they happened at the same time. And so because of that, you didn't have to wait for one trial to end to start another, like what has happened in the past. It was both of them at the same time in parallel and thus is more time efficient. And so for the phase three clinical trial, there are a couple of reasons why this went so quickly. But one of the big ones is the fact that there were a lot of volunteers that were ready to participate. So think about it, you're recruiting tens of thousands of people. I think 40,000 people were in the Pfizer clinical trial. That's a lot of people. And if you think about how much time you would have to spend to sign all these people up for a clinical trial, it usually takes time. A lot of recruitment efforts have to be made. And so all of these were bypassed because this pandemic clearly upended the lives of many people, not just Americans, but a lot of people. And so the volunteers were ready. They were ready to sign up. And so 
that part of bureaucracy and administrative details, those were already cleared before the phase three clinical trial could even start. And so that being said, a lot of time was shaved off because of this. And so the next one is the FDA approval. And so the FDA approval did not really happen. It was emergency use authorization, like I mentioned previously. And what this enabled FDA to do is to review the clinical trial data as it was happening in real time. And Dr. Garcia Sashi will also go into this. But the FDA did not receive a huge packet or a huge booklet of all the data. They were reviewing it almost on a daily basis. And so they could kind of see, oh, this is what the patients were going through or the the trial participants. And so because of that, it was a lot more efficient than having to get all the data all at once and then spend however long it takes for them to review it when they could review it in real time. And so because of that, that's how we were able to get the authorization relatively quickly, because usually the review process takes quite some time. And then the last is the mass production. And so with the emergency use authorization granted in December, Vaccines were already on the rollout by December 13th, I think was the day. And that's when a lot of health professionals, people in nursing homes could get the vaccine. And so the question is, how did that happen? Vaccines take some time. You got to get the factory set up and factory workers have to be recruited. All of these things have to come together. And that's where Operation Warp Speed came in. And so what Operation Warp Speed did is that it already established the facilities and the factories needed to produce the vaccine. Those were already ready to go before the vaccines were completed. And so because of that, we didn't have to wait to create the facilities, clear out the facilities of whatever they were making previously, etc. They were all ready to go. And so because of that, that creates a lot of efficiency in this process and why we were able to produce the vaccine so quickly after its approval from the FDA. But these are all the reasons why it was so quickly and hopefully you can see from all of these different components and elements that there weren't any cut corners, there weren't any compromises in regulation. And so it was really just about making the process more efficient and likely in future you know, pandemics, God forbid this ever happens again, but this sets the framework, an unprecedented framework for how we can get a vaccine out so quickly in the future. And so hopefully this has convinced you guys that speed really isn't a reason to be hesitant about the vaccines because really this process was just more efficient. Before there was a lot of bureaucratic red tape, a lot of administrative details and work that had to go into um, developing the vaccines and, and Operation Warp Speed just got rid of all of that and made the process way more efficient. And, and so the bottom line is that yes, the COVID-19 vaccines were produced at un, an unprecedented rate. It's never been seen before. It's a scientific feat and a huge accomplishment. But really what enabled us to do that was that we were in a good position to produce the vaccines because we already knew coronaviruses. We already had a lot of background from SARS and MERS. We were riding a wave of scientific and technological advancement with mRNA vaccines. And, and because of Operation Warp Speed, we removed a lot of inefficient processes that usually happen during vaccine development. And so that's the first myth that we, we really focused on, which is the speed at which the vaccines were produced. And so the next one that we want to talk about is the, I've already gotten COVID, so I don't need to get vaccinated. And so there are a couple of reasons why this logic is flawed. And one of them is the fact that you can get infected with COVID multiple times. And so during the pandemic, a lot of people were reporting that I've already gotten COVID, but I got COVID again. And so this multiple infections was kind of worrisome to scientists, especially because 
It wasn't clear whether or not the virus was mutating, etc. And so the fact that you can get infected with COVID-19 more than once would suggest that if you've got COVID already once, the vaccine may help prevent you from getting infected again, which has been shown to happen without the vaccine. And so this is one reason why, even though you've already gotten COVID, you should still get vaccinated. And if you've already gotten COVID twice, you should still get vaccinated because you don't know if you'll get infected again. And so another reason why this logic is not so sound is because there are variants. And so I'm sure you guys have heard that there are two very prevalent variants, one from the UK and one from South Africa. And interestingly, the vaccines have been shown to protect against many of the variants. I don't think it's as high as the original strain of COVID-19, but it's still protective and it's still preventative. And so it's very important to get vaccinated, even though you've already gotten COVID, to protect against these variants that have been very, very prevalent in both society, in the US society and worldwide. And the third is an, is an immunity related point, which is that we don't know as scientists how long immunity from COVID-19 lasts. What we know is that if you get infected with the same strain of COVID more than once, that means the first infection doesn't confer lifelong immunity to COVID-19. And because of that, there still needs to be more data on this. We still don't know. Scientists are still working on it. But this would demonstrate that we don't know how long you're immune after you've already gotten COVID. So the third myth that I'm really excited about getting into are the side effects of COVID-19, because I think this is where misinformation can really go crazy. And so even though I've been fully vaccinated, I get a lot of notifications on the news, Facebook, etc., where it's like someone got the vaccine and then died. There are these fear-inducing things that are being propagated by the media. And so it's really important for you guys as educated young individuals to be informed about what these side effects are. Go beyond the headline and go into the facts. And so I'm going to talk about a side effects. I'm going to talk about the dreaded second dose for Moderna and Pfizer. And I'm going to talk about the J&J blood clots. How many of you guys had an adverse reaction to that second dose? I know a lot of people have. And when I say an adverse reaction, I mean any of these symptoms listed on the slide, maybe a fever, fatigue, chills, or a headache. Yeah, so even with me, I, I had a really bad day. <laughs> I was very, very tired. I got chills, I didn't sleep all night, and I had a fever as well. And so I got all of these, these symptoms after my second Pfizer dose. And so really unpacking why this happened is a, is a really important point. And so the reason why your body gets a fever is because it's trying to actively destroy the pathogen. Bacteria and viruses cannot survive as well in very high temperature environments. It's a protective mechanism by your immune system. And so without going too much into immunology, all of these symptoms are, are proof that your body is reacting, your immune system is working, and that the vaccine is triggering an immune response, which is what you want if COVID-19 infects your body. And so these are the reasons why you have reactions from the second dose and why it's not a cause for concern and why it's not a cause for you to feel hesitant about getting the vaccine. And so the second side effect that I'm really excited to talk about today are the blood clots. And so if you guys have been keeping up with the news, you might have known that the FDA recommended or instituted a pause on the J&J vaccine because of blood clots. And so Johnson & Johnson is one of the companies that was supported by Operation Warp Speed. And it produced a vaccine shortly after Moderna and Pfizer successfully created theirs. And 
what happened is that there were anecdotes of people, all women, getting butt clogged. And so I don't know if you guys have heard this phrase, but I used it literally a week ago. And while I was creating this lecture, I found out how inaccurate it was. So the chances of getting blood clots from birth control is one in a thousand. And the, the chances of you getting a blood clot from the J&J vaccine is about one in a million. And so people were arguing, well, birth control is prevalently used. And if you can take birth control, you'll have a smaller chance of getting a blood clot from the J&J vaccine. However, there's an important distinction in this statement, which is that the blood clots caused from birth control tend to happen in your thigh or your calf. So it's mainly localized in your leg. The J&J vaccine is slightly different because the blood clotting that comes there or has been shown to be resulting from the J&J vaccine is actually in your brain. And so the blood clotting that resulted from the J&J vaccine, which I'm really hesitant about my phrasing because it's unclear what caused the blood clotting. It's a very, very rare thing that happens and scientists are still unsure what about the vaccine caused it or if the vaccine even caused it. So it's really important for you guys to know and be well informed about what exactly this blood clotting really is. And so the blood clotting situation that happened is called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or CVST, which is clotting in the brain that prevents blood drainage, which as you guys can tell is very, very serious. And so what happened in the timeline of the J&J vaccine is that in April 2021, the FDA ordered a pause on the J&J vaccine because six women developed CVST within two weeks of getting the J&J vaccine, one of whom died. And then vaccinations resumed one week later after reviewing basically what happened with each of these cases. And so just so you guys are really informed and as you guys are sure to be doctors and scientists, what is CVST and how can we determine what it looks like? What is the pathology? And so here in these images, you can tell from MRI what a CVST looks like because of these three specific circumstances. So it's, it's classified or diagnosed as CVST when we see these hallmark signs in the MRI. The first is called a cord sign, which is right here. You see it's not on the right side, it's on the left, this little patch of white here. This will prevent blood from draining from your sinuses. Another one is here. This is called a dense triangle sign. This is another example of a CVST in a patient where you don't see it here. And then another thing is called an, an empty delta sign, which is right here where you can see this little triangle where you should see gray matter, you don't see it. And so that would indicate that there is a clot of blood that's preventing drainage of the blood. And so this is what CVST is, and this is what specifically these six women had after getting the J&J &J vaccine. So now that we know what the problem is, what the pathology is, let's go into a bit more of the facts and the data. And so if we look at the incidence of CVST blood clots in the population that was vaccinated with the J&J &J vaccine, it's 6.8 million. That percentage is 0.0000088%. Now let's look at the general population. The general population is five out of one million. That is five times that of the J&J &J vaccine. And so this would suggest that you are not as likely to get it from the J&J &J vaccine as you are just by being alive in the general population. And so there are a lot of questions that we can have from seeing this data. And so I'd like you guys to kind of Think about this as a scientist. So you have this data, but what questions 
does this bring up? One thing that I was thinking, what other things do these six women that got blood clots have in common other than the fact that they took the vaccine? That's an excellent question. And so when I was doing my research, a lot of the women were between a very specific age group. And I think a lot of them were, they, they said they had hormonal factors, which I think means that they're either on birth control or some kind of birth control, where they have some active hormones that are not normally active per se. I mentioned one person died, right? How many people usually die of CVST? That's a question. And so I was doing my research and the fatality rate of CVST is actually 8.3%. And so if we do the math, even though it's a super small sample size, don't tell my mentor I did this, but it's N of six, right? N of six women had CVST, one of them died. That's one out of six or 16%. And so even though we would need more data to, to look at this, it's not that dissimilar the fatality rate is not as different as it is with normal CVST. And so even though we see, maybe we see prevalence of CVST, we don't know if it's more fatal because of the J&J vaccine. There may be other confounding variables here as well. So confounding variables are variables that may be interfering your data in ways that you're not accounting for. I think another question that I would ask that I don't think anyone has the answer to currently is it's all women, right? What about CVST? How frequently does it occur in men versus women? Why is this occurring in just women? If this was representative of the population, we would see almost all women having CVST in the general population, when really it's 60% women and 40% men. And so this may be kind of getting at what is causing the, the blood clots and whether or not this is happening just in females because of a, a biological sex-specific difference. But was the vaccine administered equally to both men and women so that we can be sure that CBST may be only occurring in women for one reason or the other? So actually, that's a great question. And 60% of the people who received the J&J vaccine were women. It was not 50-50. Yeah, so that's a great point. Those are other biases that are at play because otherwise you're making the assumption that it's a one-to-one, -one, right? One-to-one -one males and females when really it's not. So I'm going to keep going. So. Now that hopefully we've busted some of the major, major myths at play, there are other ones like vaccines cause infertility and miscarriage. There is no concrete evidence that supports that claim. Just like smelling a flower causes cancer. There is no evidence. And so it's really hard to address it when there's just nothing there to, to say that, that, that this is happening. And so hopefully we've kind of gotten into why are we, why are people hesitant about the vaccine? Who is hesitant about the vaccine? And what can we say or do or research to dispel these concerns in essence? And so another thing with the J&J &J vaccine that I wanted to point out is I'm sure you guys have heard a lot about the efficacy rate. Like you guys have heard that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are 95% effective against COVID and the J&J &J vaccine that one, I believe, is around 60, high some, high 60 percentage, I believe, is the efficacy rate for J&J. &J. And so if you're looking at those two numbers, it sounds like you should get the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, right? Not maybe the J&J &J vaccine. And so maybe this has led to a lot of people wanting one vaccine over another. And so if you want to get the vaccine, you may be confronted with the question of which vaccine do I get? And so this video really helps kind of 
dispel a lot of myths surrounding the different vaccines. We just talked about the vaccine as a whole, but really there's a lot of confusion and misinformation about the type of vaccine that you should be getting. And this is a video from Vox that explains why we can't compare the COVID-19 vaccines. This is the new one-dose COVID-19 vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. In early March, more than 6,000 doses were supposed to be shipped to the city of Detroit, Michigan. But the mayor said, no thanks. Moderna and Pfizer are the best. And I am going to do everything I can to make sure the residents of the city of Detroit get the best. He was referring to these numbers, the vaccine's efficacy rates. The vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna have super high efficacy rates, 95 and 94 percent. But Johnson & Johnson, just 66. And if you only look at these numbers, it's natural to think that these vaccines are worse than these. But that assumption is wrong. These numbers are arguably not even the most important measure of how effective these vaccines are. To understand what is, you first have to understand what vaccines are even supposed to do. A vaccine's efficacy rate is calculated in large clinical trials, when the vaccine is tested on tens of thousands of people. Those people are broken into two groups. Half get the vaccine and half get a placebo. Then they're sent out to live their lives while scientists monitor whether or not they get COVID-19 over several months. In the trial for Pfizer-BioNTech, for example, there were 43,000 participants. In the end, 170 people were infected with COVID-19. And how those people fall into each of these groups determines a vaccine's efficacy. If the 170 were evenly split, that would mean you're just as likely to get sick with the vaccine as without it. So it would have a 0% efficacy. If all 170 were in the placebo group and zero people who got the vaccine were sick, the vaccine would have an efficacy of 100%. With this particular trial, there were 162 in the placebo group and just eight in the vaccine group. It means those who had the vaccine were 95% less likely to get COVID-19. The vaccine had a 95% efficacy. Now, this doesn't mean if 100 people are vaccinated, five of them will get sick. Instead, that 95% number applies to the individual. So each vaccinated person is 95% less likely than a person without a vaccine to get sick each time they're exposed to COVID-19. And every vaccine's efficacy rate is calculated in the same way. But each vaccine's trial might be done in very different circumstances. So one of the biggest considerations here uh, when we look at these numbers is the timing in which these clinical trials were performed. This is the number of daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. since the pandemic began. The Moderna trial was done completely in the U.S. here in the summer. The Pfizer-BioNTech trial was primarily based in the U.S. too, and at the same time. Johnson & Johnson, however, held their U.S. trial at this time, when there were more opportunities for participants to be exposed to infections. And most of their trial took place in other countries, primarily South Africa and Brazil. And in these other countries, not only were case rates high, but the virus itself was different. 
the trials took place as variants of COVID-19 emerged and became dominant infections in these countries, variants that are more likely to get participants sick. In South Africa, most of the cases in the Johnson & Johnson trial were that of the variant, not the original strain that was in the U.S. over the summer. And despite that, it still significantly reduced infections. If you're trying to make one-to-one head-to-head comparisons between vaccines, they need to have been studied in the same trial with the same inclusion criteria in the same parts of the world at the same time. If we were to take Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine and redo their clinical trial at the same time that we saw did J&J's clinical trial, we might see quite different efficacy numbers for those. These efficacy numbers really just tell you what happened in each vaccine's trial, not exactly what will happen in the real world. But many experts argue this isn't even the best number to judge a vaccine by anyway, because preventing any infection at all is not always the point of a vaccine. The goal of a vaccine program for COVID-19 is not necessarily to get to COVID-0, but it's to tame this virus, to defang it, to remove its ability to cause serious disease, hospitalization, and death. It helps to look at the different outcomes of an exposure to COVID-19 like this. The best case scenario is you don't get sick at all. The worst case is death. In between, there's being hospitalized, severe to moderate symptoms, or having no symptoms at all. In the absolute best circumstances, vaccines give you protection all the way to here. But realistically, that isn't the main objective of COVID-19 vaccines. The real purpose is to give your body enough protection to cover these possibilities. So if you do get an infection, it feels more like a cold than something you'd be hospitalized for. And this is one thing that every one of these COVID-19 vaccines do well. In all these trials, while some people in the placebo groups were hospitalized or even died from COVID-19, not one fully vaccinated person in any of these trials was hospitalized or died from COVID-19. One thing that I wish that Mayor would have understood was that all three vaccines have essentially 100% effectiveness in protecting from death. The mayor of Detroit did backtrack and said he'd start taking Johnson & Johnson doses because it's still highly effective against what we care about most. Efficacy matters, but it doesn't matter the most. The question isn't which vaccine will protect you from any COVID infection, but which one will keep you alive or out of the hospital? Which one will help end the pandemic? And that's any of them. The best vaccine right now for you is the one that you're offered. With each shot that goes in someone's arm, we get closer to the end of this pandemic. All right, hopefully you guys have gotten a lot more information about not only the pandemic, but also the vaccines, why people are hesitant about taking the vaccines, and also what are the differences between all the different vaccines that are available to us currently. And so with that, I think it's it's good for us to open it up to questions and open it up to free-form discussion where people can really just ask whatever they would want. How can students encourage people of color, minorities, and even their parents about the importance of taking their vaccines if they are hesitant? I totally relate to that, to the experience of being like a child of immigrant parents. And speaking from my personal experience, my parents were hesitant to take any other vaccine other than the Pfizer one. And I'm from Canada, and right now 
like Pfizer isn't like that readily available there. And it's really the AstraZeneca vaccine that is available to them. And they were very, very hesitant to take it. And even with me as a scientist and me telling them all the facts, they were still hesitant to take it. My mom literally said in this chat, the government is forcing us to take these vaccines because they're going to expire soon. So these are bad vaccines. And I think it's just, it's very, very difficult, I think, to convince someone when they, even if you do speak the same language and you do communicate and translate the right facts to them, which is what I've tried to do, they still seem to have this very strong hesitancy. And what I've kind of realized is, is that a lot of people don't necessarily trust experts or what government or public health officials say, but they trust people that they know. And so I think one good thing to do would be to like lead by example. I feel like if if my parents had friends that took that AstraZeneca vaccine and these people didn't have severe side effects or nothing severely bad happened to them, they would be more likely to take it. And so I think leading by example is also like maybe also a kind of good suggestion if you show that you taking the Johnson Johnson vaccine and nothing has happened to you, maybe they might be more convinced if they see like others around them doing just fine. And I also think there's like just the with the news nowadays, people report on the most sensational stories and the most sensational stories are the ones where people are dying. But all these sensational stories are again, super like rare cases, which is why they end up on the news. Our co-host Nina shares more thoughts on strategies you can use to fight vaccine hesitancy and mentions episode three of our podcast, where we talked to a community leader about ways she encouraged her community members to take their COVID vaccine. So I think you touched on something really important. And when you guys like listen to episode three of Harvard Holt, like that's going to come up a lot, right? Like trust matters. And people really don't necessarily think about the value of trust, right? But there's a difference in the way that you receive communications from somebody that you're friends with versus somebody you're not, right? The way that you take information from a teacher that you like is probably very different from that of a teacher you don't like or a class that you don't like. How do you communicate these things? Like Naira touched on, you do have some communities that have a history of mistreatment. My parents, my grandparents aren't immigrants, so I can't really speak to that experience. But for some of you in this like conversation, that's a very real thing, right? So how do you have that conversation and you're communicating through a language barrier or a cultural barrier? There are these other factors that you have to account for. And there's not, I don't think, a perfect answer to this, right? Like it's a multi-pronged approach. But I know Joanna mentioned it with like science communication and a couple of you guys mentioned it. So like one part of the problem that we keep going back to in this is that people are hesitant because they don't know. Science communication is not terrific in this nation. And in a lot of cases, not because we keep science as lock and key as possible, right? And when you keep things as lock and key as possible. Unfortunately, people don't know what to trust or they're trusting any information that's coming out. There were doctors that were saying like hydroquinone was perfectly safe, right? Or whatever drug they were peddling, whatever thing it was that the administration at that time was saying was safe. You have people trusting different people. So I think part of that is, again, it's establishing trust. So who are the trusted figures in a community if we're talking about like vaccination? Are there physicians we could go to? The thing is, 
in this nation, unfortunately, you still have medical care that varies based on what your physician looks like. If your physician may be of the same race, they may treat you differently than a physician who is not of your race. In New York City alone, black women are eight times more likely to die in childbirth than white women, right? And a majority of physicians who deliver babies in New York City are not black. So that probably has a bit to do with it because there are plenty of studies that have come out where physicians don't believe that black people have the same capacity for pain as white people, or they don't believe them whenever they're stating that something is wrong. So that obviously plays a role in outcomes. So part of that is, are there physicians, are there medical centers, are there medical staffs that you can trust, right? Reverend Holt, who we talked to, was a registered nurse. And part of her advantage in communicating with people wasn't that she was just a reverend, but she was a nurse. So she understood public health itself. And the community she was serving was mainly African-American, just as she is. So there is a level of trust that exists there because they're coming from the exact same experience. So one thing would be to find a provider sometimes you might understand your experience if you're an immigrant if you're a person of color that is really really essential my pediatrician growing up was biracial just like me and that probably played a large difference in the way that she was able to treat me versus had she not been of the same ethnic background right so that's one thing another thing is you guys are young you have access to everything and like we said disinformation is everywhere I hate to sound like your teachers. Trust your scholarly sources, right? If it's not a .edu, please do not just take information from it. If it is not a medical journal that's trusted, PubMed, et cetera, please do not just take any information. And even then you should have some skepticism, right? Because information is constantly changing, it's constantly developing. You could state that so far, this is what we know. And we're going to know more in the future, right? That's totally okay. You can ask members of that community if you feel comfortable. So you can communicate it to your friends, your parents, cousins, whomever you need to. It's on us to actively take a role in understanding information and figuring out even where our parents, grandparents, et cetera, are coming from. Maybe a good place to start would be asking them, so why do you feel hesitant about this vaccine? So what makes you feel that way? So what has been your experience? Part of alleviating some of the stress that people feel is to actually address those issues head on. So I think if we take this kind of approach, right, and it's, you can't do it overnight, it's gonna take time, we can actually begin to address this and we can get people to be less vaccine hesitant moving forward. And I think part of it is, is that it's also like a psychological thing and I don't want to get too much into this, but people are hesitant to do things that are new, that they perceive as risk-taking behavior. So for instance, people drive every day and the chance of you dying in a car accident is like way higher than you dying of getting the COVID vaccine. But because my dad drives every day, he doesn't really necessarily perceive that risk as much as he does when it comes to taking the, the vaccine, right? So I think part of it is also like realizing that people have this sort of perceived risk of the unknown, of like not knowing what they're getting into as well. Whereas every day that you live, you are taking some sort of risk. When you go outside into the outside world, there's a small chance that some sort of freak accident is going to happen to you. And some people are like, well, if I don't take the vaccine, nothing is going to happen to me, not like adverse side effects and whatnot. But a good point to make is you're taking a risk every single day. And this is not the most risk-taking thing you can do. This is actually quite a very low risk event or a low risk thing to engage with compared to all the other things that you risk your life for like every single day, like getting in a car or like crossing the street or yeah. <laughs> How can we be sure that there won't be long-term effects after COVID vaccination? If we can't be sure, how are scientists dealing with this uncertainty? 
Well, it's important to remember that vaccines are different from medicines in that drugs build up in the body's tissues over time as we take them. Vaccines are different in that they are designed to deliver their payload and then are quickly eliminated from the body. This is especially true of the COVID-19 vaccines, which are mRNA vaccines. mRNA degrades very quickly, thus long-term side effects are not much of a concern. We have never seen long-term side effects of any vaccine, and if we do see effects, they are usually short-term or within two months of vaccination. The FDA is also continually monitoring the clinical trial data in real time and will be able to immediately identify any long-term effects, though the possibility of that happening is very small. So I, I think I, I think that's a great point that you made. I think that's certainly true. Scientists act on based on what they know in the moment. And scientific information is always changing. Like the stuff that you learn in your textbooks now is not necessarily going to be what your kids are going to learn like 20 years from now. Maybe the stuff that I learned in high school is not the stuff that you're learning in high school because scientific information and research is just happening at such a fast level, especially nowadays, now that there's more and more people going into science, the rate of discovery is just happening super, super fast and new information is happening all the time. And public health officials change regulations based on new information. I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, people were saying that masks weren't effective and that there was no point in wearing masks. And then later on, they changed that because they got new information showing that masks were effective. Why hasn't pharmaceutical research and development been more transparent about the technologies they've been developing prior to the pandemic? If the public was more aware of these technologies, would it have reduced vaccine hesitancy? This is a major problem in the scientific community because there's competition amongst research groups and pharmaceutical companies, they, they don't talk about what they're working on until they get a patent and they can like make money off of it. Another thing to keep in mind is that awareness of a technology in the public might not necessarily mean they approve of it or are okay with it being used on them. Perhaps if the public was more aware of, for example, mRNA technology being used for vaccines, and there was an mRNA vaccine that was created before the COVID vaccine, it would have helped a little bit with vaccine hesitancy. But given a lot of the factors that contribute to vaccine hesitancy that we've talked about today, maybe it would have made only a very small difference. What do you think scientists should do to make their discoveries more accessible to people who are non-scientists or members of the general public? So I don't know if you guys have tried reading a scientific paper, like yeah, one is. with all the, like, I don't know if you guys have read studies with like mice, but they have all these weird jargony things. Like even now, like I'm 20, almost 23, I'm doing my PhD. When I read a nature paper, it takes me like, a week and it takes me a long time to go through the figures to go through the data to understand the words they use each field has a different jargon set and so i think one thing that would really help is if when you write a paper you write of an article next to it or in parallel that communicates what you did in ways that, a, that the public can understand because that would be really helpful for people if they like see a scientific paper with a really cool conclusion, but you have no idea how the data was done. You have no idea how the experiments were done. You have no idea how the data was analyzed or collected. And I feel like 
if we had if you had to communicate your science to not scientists but to the public this would be a really helpful increase in transparency yeah so really quick i just wanted to mention that scientists because we're so immersed in our area of research like a lot of scientists have trouble communicating their data or communicating their science to people who are non-scientists to communicate their data in a way that is simple enough for people not in their field to understand i just wanted to also kind of say that we try i think a lot of scientists do try to talk about their science but there needs to be improvement on the type of training that we receive or the type of mentorship that we receive or more of an emphasis on being able to explain things to a non-scientist as well. I remember when I was an undergrad, my mentor was a veterinarian. She did research and we all had to take this mandatory lecture on Fridays and we would listen to some research that someone somewhere from Yale or wherever was doing. And she said, well, sometimes even I have no idea what's going on because these people are really great at communicating to other people who are there, but not necessarily communicating to people who don't do what they do every single day. And the problem is, if she was an actual researcher, right? She was a veterinarian researcher, and she didn't understand, how is somebody outside of that supposed to understand? So if you can't even communicate it within your field, I mean, I think part of that difficulty is anybody can say anything outside of that, right? And that's part of what's been happening, right? You oversimplify the message sometimes, and people don't understand, they don't know any better then people get this piece of information like 66% efficacy and they get nervous about that when like if you probably polled people like a year ago and you were like would you take a vaccine from Pfizer Johnson and Johnson okay I understand drug companies so I might say Pfizer but most people know Johnson and Johnson right they make baby powder they make stuff that we use every single day they make our band-aids right the name recognition that we have that we wouldn't have for AstraZeneca in the same way or that we wouldn't have for what's the other one Sputnik so it does come down again to that science communication, but it also comes down to the way that we see science in society, right? Like we also live in an age where we think that because we can Google anything, we're experts too. And we don't have that crosstalk of conversation. A large part of the problem is people in science have to have these conversations with people in public health too, so they can communicate it to the public, right? Public health is meant to do that, but those conversations don't always happen. And they're not always coming from a place of respect. So it's difficult to communicate with people who are meant to communicate the message to the broader public, right? If they don't feel like they're being respected or if some of the people who are working in public policy don't feel like they're getting that so they can't inform people so it really does come down to a communication issue and it's kind of like there needs to be an overhaul across the board right so i think it comes down to the communication that we have and how we can tackle misinformation and how we can reframe the conversation right what does science literacy look like in this country should we be improving that so we can work on that so that misinformation is not such a problem like there are so many different levels that i think Right now, we don't have the answer for it, but in five years, sociologists are going to have like a field day just going through like the whole COVID phenomenon and being able to look at like, these are where the missteps happened, this is where this happened, this is where that happened. A bigger question being, will it be too late at that point? Will we have moved further this way or that way? And will it be worse next time something like this happens, right? So I think it's a bigger conversation. It's not something I think any of us will have the answer to today or next week or next month, but it's certainly something that we should think about and consider as we move forward, as we're all going through as individuals living through this pandemic, as people who are going to relay this to people who are not alive during this period, etc. Why do you think the concept that most COVID vaccines are 100% effective at preventing death is not often communicated, whereas the efficacy rates are? So I think it's really important to recognize that 
scientists are very hesitant about making claims that can be misconstrued. So the goal of saying the 95% or the 66%, they're really honestly just trying to say in human trials, here's the percentage of people that didn't get COVID after being vaccinated. It really depends on what the, what the question that you ask. So the question that the public asks generally is, well, when you gave people this vaccine, how many people got COVID? Because that's the standard measure of efficacy, right? That's how they want the public to understand whether or not a vaccine is effective. But if the public were to ask the companies, well, how effective is this at preventing death, then they will reply 100%. But that isn't the standard in communicating about the vaccine. These aren't the numbers that are reported on more frequently because preventing death is a given. It should be a given, but unfortunately it's like people don't really think about it like that. And also like that video highlighted, right? The differences in efficacy between the vaccines or perceived efficacy, right? Have a lot to do with when the clinical trial took place. And that isn't something that's super, super widely reported on either. But I think we can certainly, like there are companies out there like Vox, which made this video and other people that are really trying to combat misinformation and vaccine hesitancy by helping people and the public understand the data better. And I think it's just about what questions you ask. How are you thinking of what is it, what does it mean for a vaccine to be effective, right? Thinking about that concept a little bit differently can help you get to more sound answers. What do people gain from spreading misinformation? I think this is a really interesting question because I would ask you guys, do you think these people think they're spreading misinformation or do they think they're spreading the truth? It's what do people believe? We have to understand that what is true to us may not be true for some other people. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen this one movie about a Holocaust denier, but he argued that, no, I'm arguing the truth. I'm not lying. Mm. And, and so he like, even though it's a really extreme example, it really demonstrates that like what's true to us may not be true to other people. And so people that think they're spreading misinformation, they don't see it that way. They think they're spreading the truth. And so that's a really important distinction that we should be making. And that wraps up today's episode of Putnam Podcast. We hope you learned a lot about the COVID vaccine, the history and current state of vaccine hesitancy, and strategies to overcome it within your local community. If you're interested in learning more, visit our website at politicsunderthemicroscope.com for more resources. This meeting is being recorded. Can everyone see my screen? Can everyone hear me? Ali, you're muted. We can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Can everyone hear me now? <laughs>